Everyone, welcome to episode 20 of the Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy over on one of your sides, Vlad. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, Luis Narvaez. <laughs> He's the product marketing manager at Siemens. Um, and, and I think that this is fantastic. We were talking about this, and I, I love the conversations that we're having. Luis, can you give us a little bit of the background of how you got into automation and how you managed to make it uh, to, pro to, to be the product marketing manager uh, where you are now? Yeah, um, I guess, first of all, you know, thank you guys for having me as a guest on your show. I've seen some of the past uh, guests you, you guys have had, so it's, uh, it's really humbling to, to, to be featured as a, as a guest here. Um, <clears throat> going back to your question, I guess, uh, on how I got into automation or how I started or how I even got into my role within uh, Siemens today, it's, it's, it's interesting. I actually, um, I, I went to school at the University of Central Florida, while I was there, I had an internship at a uh, local theme park. I, I live in Central Florida, um, and so there's plenty of them. <laughs> there's there's two big ones in, in particular that you know come to mind when you think of um, Florida. And um, so I got an internship and um, really got to touch and see automation equipment being used in a setting that was not a factory floor, not a process plant or anything like that, not a wastewater facility. Uh, it was really interesting. And so that kind of got me very interested and, in, in, I don't know, gave me a love for automation. Um, when I was getting close to graduating from, uh, from the university, um, I had a couple of job interviews and uh, I had one with Siemens actually, um, you know, a lot of universities, they do these, um, they do these career fairs. And so, you know, every, every semester or so they'll do a career fair and it's usually the same companies that show up to these career fairs. And, um, uh, if you, if you're not familiar with the area where you university, where UCF is right across the street is Siemens energy, um, headquarters or, or campus or whatever, um, literally right across the street, you could walk there from, from the school. And, um, and so they would always show up to the job fair, you know, right. Make, made a little bit more sense. And so I would see the same recruiter every time and, um, I would always go see them. And then it was my last semester after I had this, these inter this internship, uh, under my belt. And, um, granted I was at this internship for a while, <laughs> for quite a while, uh, and I rotated throughout different engineering groups, you know, at the park. But um, I, I went up to the guy at Siemens and I'm like, hey, I know you guys are with Siemens Energy. You don't do, you know, industrial automation, but I really want to get into this field. This is what I've, you know, learned on my internship. This is where I feel like I have my strengths. And if you could just pass, you know, my resume or, or whatever to whoever, you know, on that side can can get me an interview, I would deeply appreciate it. And so, um, you know, that was that. And I think a few weeks later, I got a call from, um, from somebody at Siemens to do a, you know, a phone interview and then turned into an onsite interview and then turned into, you know, um, we want to hire you. And, um, and, and that was that. And ever since then, I, 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 um, I've rotated throughout different parts within Siemens. I started off with, uh, it's called the engineering leadership development program. Um, and that's, 
you know, Siemens and the, a lot of companies, they do these leadership, they, they have different names for them, but they're essentially rotation programs. And the nice thing about this is that, you know, the way Siemens at least structured it, it was, you know, a rotation every six months to a different part within Siemens. And of course, you know, in the name being engineering, um, they were more technical type roles. And so um, being in that role, I got to pretty much dabble in everything. I got to touch, you know, factory automation, process automation, machine tools, um, you know, all SCADA, um, all kinds of different applications. And, um, and it's really opened up a lot of doors, you know, just being able to understand the different uh, possibilities of just automation. I mean, it, it's funny when I, when I got into automation, it was, I kind of just thought it was a little bit more of a narrow focus, but then when you, when you get into a company that does automation and, and does it well, then it just kind of, you see the opportunities and the branches and you just, your head starts spinning again. Like, you know, <laughs> you can't tell somebody, yeah, I want to get into automation. And then they're just like, well, what do you want to do in automation? <laughs> so. Well, so um, I have uh, multiple questions. So yeah, anyway, so that, after. Uh, so go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I, go ahead. No, no, sorry. There's a little bit of delay with the audio, so I appreciate it. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you ask your questions. I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll, I'll end up answering them then. <laughs> Sounds good. I do want to dive in, you know, before we get to today into the leadership development program. So I know, you know, it's obviously there's many companies that have a similar structure, um, but, you know, having not gone through one of those programs and just have heard about them, you know, maybe from companies. I was curious about, you know, your perspective. How is that program structured? Um, what are maybe the benefits of it? And I think you've mentioned already a couple, but, um, you know, in general, could you describe the experience? Is it something, again, after those six months, do you rotate to something that you choose, that the company chooses? How does that dynamic work? Because I think it's important for, you know, new or current engineering students uh, going through these career options to kind of evaluate some of the different paths that they might not be familiar with. Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of directions I could go with this. Um, I, I guess I'll just kind of, I mean, I love the idea of a development program in general. I think there's, you know, I would say myself, I, I, and I didn't mention this, I, sorry about that. I, I graduated with an electrical engineering degree. And so, um, you know, a lot of times when you, when you go to engineering school, you're just kind of like, you, you learn what they teach you in school, but it's very kind of general applications, you know, in general towards electrical engineering. But there's some schools are a little bit more focused towards like PLC programming. Some are focused towards microelectronics, some are more focused on software development and some are more just, you know, general and stuff like that. And, um, but I didn't have an idea specifically what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be an engineer because I was going to school to be one, but I didn't know what field excited me as much, you know, until I did my internship and, and did a little bit more uh, dabbling in, in the automation space. And so um, I will say that the 
any kind of development program where you get to rotate throughout different parts of a of a given company is beneficial in that respect that if you don't know exactly what you want to do or what kind of job title you want to have or what kind of responsibilities or tasks you think you would fit in a rotation program is perfect because you know if you get dumped into a rotation that you're not really excited for you don't really think it's a good fit it's only temporary you know you're only there for a given amount of time and you know hey i don't i don't want to do that job <laughs> you know that one's that one's not for me right and so you move on to the next rotation but the unfortunate thing is is that it's it's it is a limited amount of time so if within that time you still don't find something that really excites you there have been times, you know, with, with past colleagues where there's been a struggle of like, I don't really know where I fit in this company or I don't know where I, um, what I want to do within the company. And that's perfectly fine. And I think that's, um, it, it's scary, but you end up getting some experience that you can then take with you that you don't realize is, is very valuable when, you know, either you go looking outside of Siemens or if you do look, go look within Siemens. But the other thing I would say is that it really gives you an opportunity to network and build connections um, with within the company that you're that you're doing these rotations with, right? I will say right now that I would not be in the position I'm in at this moment had I not made some of those connections, um, had I not networked with the people that I work with today when I started with Siemens. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. Having I think, said uh, that, you know, you had a question about. Uh, sorry, I think this delay is a little weird. Having said that, I guess you had a question. You had a question on like the structure, right? Whether it, these these rotations are predetermined, whether you know you get to decide um, where you go, what part of the company. In a way, I mean, it really depends. It's it's very situational. My my particular um situation was a little bit unique um but there there's generally a structure there's usually an idea of you know what rotations you're going to be going to that doesn't mean that there's not opportunity to branch out of those those directions if you network early on and you you know the schedule seems to fit and their managers or you know have availability and things like that there, you know, you can, you can kind of um, branch into to areas that you, um, that interest you, right? So I've, I've had uh, colleagues of mine that, you know, maybe didn't have an, a rotation lined up for application engineering and they networked with, you know, one of the engineering managers or something and, you know, happens to work into their rotation, their program. Um, to do rotation as an application engineer and and it worked out because you know that's where they ended up rolling off into because they really enjoyed it um, so yeah and I, I completely <laughs> uh, you know that's um, something that I wanted to highlight from your response I think you know networking is certainly a skill that gets talked about a lot but I feel you know including myself especially earlier in my career um, I didn't fully understand the importance of it, right? And it's not, I think it's not about just building the connections, but it's just making yourself, how to say it, like known to the company or within the company so that when a position becomes available that you're interested in, 
you know, that person to some extent knows that you would be like the right fit, right? Because you could be an excellent engineer. You could be very knowledgeable and performing really well. If someone who has that opening doesn't know about your skills and your interests, then it's just not going to happen. Right. And so I think, again, looking back at myself, especially earlier in my career, I didn't have, you know, that outlook um, on the long term. And it's something that I feel um, every engineering student should uh, pay close attention to. Where, um, Louis, where did you end up after Agreed. the rotational program? And what about, uh, you know, could you give us some more information about your current role as well, um, especially when it pertains to the different product lines at Siemens? Yeah, so I've um, overall I've, I've been with Siemens for about seven years, right? So I graduated in 2014. We're we're in 2021 now. Um, actually, my my work anniversary is next next week. <laughs> now that I think about it, um, but so the rotation program that I was part of it's it's a two year program. So after you know you do four rotations of six months, um, and so after that the fourth rotation, then you you roll off into a position and hopefully by that point you know you've you've networked enough you've kind of gotten a lay of the land of who's who in the zoo that you know you find yourself into rolling into a position that excites you that interests you um, i actually rolled into a position that was one of my rotations um, my okay. third rotation i was an applications engineer um, for our machine tools business um, and so when i uh, finished the program, uh, there was an opening for an applications engineer. And so I, you know, I knew the manager, I knew all the engineers, it just happened to be a really good fit. And it was based out of my hometown in Chicago. So um, it, it was, you know, a really good fit for me there too. And so, um, so I took that and then did that for a couple of years. And then, so my hometown is Chicago, I was born there. I grew up in Florida. And um, shortly after I took the position, my, my, my wife and I, my then fiance, we got married and all of our families back in Florida. So, uh, you know, we thought, well, let's see if we can find something that, um, you know, is closer to home. Um, and so it just happened to be really good timing that there was a position for an automation consultant down in Florida. Um, and so I applied for that and <laughs> got that position. And then, um, and then there was an opening within the marketing department <laughs> to be a product manager. And um, my first rotation was, was working very closely to a lot of the product managers. And um, I think, again, like I said, you know, had I not worked closely enough with them, had I just kind of, um, had I not networked with them enough, I probably would not have gotten that position um, I either would have been, you know, an automation consultant or an application engineer in Florida, which is fine too. I, I, you know, I love the technical stuff, but I, you know, there was an opening in marketing and I actually got a call from my current manager now about the position. And, you know, it was, um, it was a good, good deal. And, and, um, and we went from there. So, um, that's how I ended up being the product manager for our S7-1200 uh, PLC. Um, 1200 and 1200 safety. 
Lewis, we got a question from your colleague in the yeah. chat who's putting you a little bit on the spot. He wrote, after my internship, I knew the next big company uh -oh. I wanted to uh, work for and why. I am curious what drove Lewis to seek out Siemens. And I guess this takes us back a little bit to your college days. You mentioned that you worked in, uh, in um, I guess, like parks and attractions, and you were looking at a recruiter that has been mm -hmm. coming onto campus multiple times. So what kind of drove you to Siemens? What made you uh, decide to go that route? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Siemens was not my only job option or job offer. I, you know, I made it a point to attend every job fair I could, even if I had offers lined up, because, you know, you don't really know until you go through these pro interview processes, until you really talk with people. And even through the interview process, sometimes you don't get a really good grasp on what you're getting into. Um, and that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of your time that's being invested in this, just like somebody else, the company that's interviewing you and the people interviewing, they invest a lot of time, their time and their money and resources to make a good hire, right? So um, to be fair, it was not the only offer I had. I really, really did enjoy working at the theme park. It was a very fun job, as you can imagine, um, is very rewarding job. Um, but my thoughts at that time were just um, the development program, the idea of going through different rotation and testing out different parts of a big company like Siemens, you know, who's very well known in the industrial automation space and has very good products. And um, that was, that I thought was a better um, opportunity career wise for me at that point, you know, a better, better chance to grow. So, that's why I ended up cho choosing Siemens was their development program just seemed to be a little bit more um, clear. Yeah, that makes better, sense. Clear choice, looks, I guess. Looks like we Which uh, colleague we asked lost... that question. Huh? <laughs> that was from John to tell him. Um, looks like we lost Dave for a second. That being oh, said, boy. we have another question from Zach who was on the podcast a few episodes ago. But he's asking, what is your favorite part about being a product manager? And I do want to come back, I guess, to the to the rides and the first job that you had, because we want to discuss that, um, I guess, non-traditional application of controls for sure. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second. But what do you what do you think uh, product management role? How does it? Um, and I think let's answer answer that question. But I want to maybe also discuss the general, you know, transition from like more of a technical background into someone who's doing a combination of marketing as well. But what are your, what are your favorite parts about being a product manager? I think um, probably the, the, it's a little bit of combination of my favorite parts of everything I've done at Siemens so far. So I get to educate, I get to, um, I get to play around with hardware, be technical in a way. I get to also do a little bit of business development, uh, help our sales colleagues. Um, I think, like I said, that's probably what I really like about it. And the marketing department is also, um, I guess being part of marketing, it's a little bit more open as to how you can uh, get ideas out there, right? 
there's a lot more tools at your disposal to, you know, if I want to create a short video on like a given cybersecurity feature, you know, that's, that's part of the job. And so I can do that. And I have the technical background that I can create this content uh, and I can share it. Therefore, educating the market on, hey, there's, you know, these tools, these features, these things you can do that um, will make your, your, your platform or your machine or your plant much more robust or safe or secure or whatever the case is. So that's, that's probably what I would say is, is my favorite part of being, this, being in this role. I'd be curious about the transition, though. I think, you know, again, looking up myself, who's always been in very technical roles and, you know, you spend days, sometimes weeks coding on the same uh, maybe application or challenge. What are maybe the components or how to even Mm -hmm. I would say, like from the rotational program side, maybe how do you get um, or purposefully learn skills that would be more applicable, you know, towards marketing and what changes do you see in your, like you said, I think you create a lot more content, you educate your customers, but what are, how has that shift happened? I'm, I'm very curious about that. Yeah. You know, I, I'll be honest when I, um, when this opportunity came up to take this position, I was a little bit hesitant because I, I love being technical and, you know, if you ask me when I started with Siemens or even when I graduated, you know, from the university, if I, in seven years, I'd be a product manager, you know, a product marketing manager, I'd work in the marketing department or, um, I, I would have not believed it, um, it's definitely not an area that I saw myself doing, but I, I genuinely enjoy this position. I would say, you know, the transition actually was not that, that bad. Um, like I said, I, I kind of have a little bit more free reign as to how technical I want to be. There are some people that are, you know, product marketing managers that just prefer to kind of stick to presenting and doing the PowerPoint and just staying marketing. Uh, and then there are others that are, you know, just have that technical background, just um, like myself and choose to to kind of be a little bit, to kind of hone in on those strengths. And I think that's, that's, again, what I really like about this position is that allows me to kind of focus on my strengths, focus on what I really like to do um, and, and keep that technical stuff. I will say it's not, you know, the technical stuff I'm doing is not like I'm on site in the trenches, you know, coding a, a machine and things like that. You know, it's not doing that kind of stuff anymore. So that, you know, that is a little bit of adjustment period. But the nice thing is, you know, I have two little girls. One's one year old, one's three. And I get to, uh, you know, be home a little bit more and, and help them out too. So that's kind of the the trade-off of, of that. And that that's more important to me, if, if anything, anyways. Dave, what do you think? Oh. Absolutely. No, no, I, I would agree. And I would like to, I'd like to highlight one of the points that, that you guys made. Um, again, talking about the educational aspect of marketing. Uh, for me, when I look at marketing, I absolutely look at the educational side. And our guest last week, Zach, also with an engineering background, also moved into the marketing, also talking about the educational aspect of marketing um, as being one of the most important. And so, so that kind of brings me to uh, to another topic that, that I'd be interested. So 
I'm sure that you talk to lots of different companies. Some are probably running Siemens everything. Some may not have necessarily heard of Siemens because we're over in the US and Siemens doesn't own the same market share it owns in Europe. So when you go and you're having these conversations, if someone is saying, hey, I don't know Siemens or I've never worked with Siemens in the past, how do you generally handle those objections? How do you go and talk them through kind of the depth and breadth of your product and what you guys have done as a company? Yeah, I think um, it's it's very situational. So it really depends on the person and the situation that you're in. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely one of the challenges. And honestly, I'll just say it's it's challenged just in general for automation, for industry, just to change mindset, right? I mean, we know, you guys know, our audience knows, automation is changing. Manufacturing is changing. You know, it's no longer about ones and zeros. It's no longer about just PLCs. We've got you know, edge integration, we've got cloud. Now we got to worry about cybersecurity. Now we've got to worry about, you know, 5G networking and wireless networking and all kinds of buzzwords and turn the AIs and the MLs and all kinds of, you know, uh, trends in industry. And it's happening so fast that I think the biggest challenge in general is just getting people into that mindset getting people to break out of their comfort zone and accept change. And I think the easiest way that I have, not easiest, I guess, but the, the best way, the most effective way that I've seen that is to focus on the customer's issues, right? Focus on what they're experiencing, their pain points right now, and then build off of that. So, you know, instead of, focusing on the product itself or the brand itself, focus on what do they need? I mean, if you're already talking to them about, if they're allowing you to talk to them about your product, you've already got, you know, your foot in the door, that's already, you know, a, a, a good start that they're open to listening uh, to something different. But, um, but it's also just enlightening them of, you know, there's a different way of doing what you're doing. Um, and let me show you, you know, this different way. And it could be, you know, with safety, it could be, you know, whatever the case is. Um, but the, I guess, you know, to go back a little bit, it's not necessarily a biggest challenge is to, um, I guess the biggest challenge in, in our case would be, you know, just getting people open to that change. But again, once you're in that door, it's it's a little bit easier to have that conversation because they're, they've already interested, they're already um, curious, right? So. No, absolutely. I, I completely agree that I think education really kind of solves, I wouldn't say like solves the problem, but I feel that there's a, how to say it, a difficult learning curve when, you know, trying to migrate or exploring new solutions. And I find it to be particularly true in manufacturing, right? And I think a lot of OEMs are starting to recognize that, you know, giving these tools to engineers earlier on and making, you know, the documentation available, the trainings available is extremely important in at least having them, you know, try the platform before they make a decision. Right? Because a lot of times it's just maybe that like first step that could be a barrier to, you know, bringing something different into the facility. 
um, and again, seeing how it performs and then deploying it onto the rest of your floor. Yeah, I think a big push right now that we're starting to see to help kind of ease those learning curves and kind of ease those transitions. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, from what I see, there's a lot of motivation for companies, for manufacturers, for factories to get away from a vendor lock scenario where they can only use vendor A because, you know, that's just what they've always had. And for the spare parts and, you know, whether it's the best solution or not, it just, that's the way it's always been. And it's too much to change now, you know? Um, and so part of that, what, what we're starting to see is organizations starting to adopt more open standards that can be applied across platform. And whether that means, you know, uh, communication structures, whether that means using more open communication protocols, um, that I think will definitely change how automation projects are approached in the future. If not, it's already, you know, at least how they're being approached now is by leveraging those open standards. Um, and that's what I think Siemens, what I really like about Siemens is that they recognize that this is kind of the direction that, that industry is going and start to try to adapt to some of those uh, open standards, right? We've, we've integrated OPC UA into our, uh, pretty much all of our products. Um, we've starting to integrate edge uh, functionality into all of our products, starting with our HMIs and our PLCs, you know, um, cloud connectivity, open protocol standards, robot integration. I mean, there's a ton of areas. TSN uh, is another, you know, kind of, um, I guess, standard that's, that's kind of being tossed around buzzword standard. That's, you know, a lot of manufacturers are going to start adopting and we're starting to see that. And, and I'm not just saying, you know, necessarily just in Siemens products, there's other vendors that are doing that too. And you can see it um, when they start to integrate all these features, it's, it's because of that push to, um, to, to adapt those open protocols and break away from those vendor lock scenarios. That way they can all play well together and, and mesh well together and communicate. I'm not, uh, Louis, I'm not familiar with TSN as much. Um, I don't know. Are, are you able to give us maybe a definition for those who are uh, listening in on a, also maybe, like, what is that exactly? I'm <laughs> on the spot. Time sensitive. So from what I. Protocol. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so TSN, I'm not, I'm not the communications expert, so somebody's probably gonna uh, fact check me on all this. But TSN is basically um, a time-sensitive networking. It's a standard, uh, I, standard push by IEEE to kind of formalize high-speed, um, real-time, deterministic communications. Hmm. Um, because you know, you guys know that right now we've got all these different types of protocols, and all of them use different types of technology. Profinet is kind of the the leading protocol with Siemens, you know, with our PLCs. And there's Profinet RT, which is you know the standard Profinet real time. There's Profinet IRT, which is um, isochronous real time. Um, that's for more deterministic, high speed, you know. 32 microsecond 
communications and you've got EtherCAD and you've got Ethernet IP and SIP sync and all these different protocols that are they're they're open, but they're very tied to very specific brands of controllers and motion platforms. And sometimes even like with the case with Profinet IRT require very specific hardware, very specific chipsets, right? And so it's not widely supported. With TSN, it kind of creates a standard that if you are going to create a Profinet TSN or a Ethernet, uh, a EtherCAT TSN, or I don't know, I don't throw another protocol out there and add TSN at the end, that we're all following the same hardware, the same rules, the same structure, and therefore kind of um, being able to use the same technology. Um, I don't know if that makes any any sense or <laughs> I'm not no, again, I'm not the communications expert, but from you know the TSN standard also is not completely finalized from what I understand. It's it's enough that manufacturers and um, organizations can start developing their protocols to adapt the TSN standards, but it's not, you know, completely you know finalized and framed out from the last I heard. I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess while if somebody in the were, chat knows, please correct me. As you were discussing it, uh, I pulled up a page and it, it, it looks like it's an IEEE 802.1 standard that enables faster transfer speeds, right? And especially with the adoption of uh, 5G and I guess the increase of bandwidth of data that we're trying to collect at the plant floor, um, it's going to standardize, as you said, but also increase the uh, the available bandwidth of um, internet or ethernet based uh, protocols. So that makes sense. No, it's a, sorry, it's a, it's a little side note. Yep. I, I heard you mention it. So I was just curious uh, what it was, but that makes sense. No, perfect. Uh, so it looks like uh, behind your right shoulder, you have some fun, interesting toys. Uh, can we, can we potentially segue into you giving us a little bit of a rundown oh of, uh, uh, of what you've got there? Oh boy. Um, so I'll start over here. Let me see if I can bring it closer to the camera. Unplug this. Oh, just just rows I've and got, rows of stuff. You're gonna make flat um, jealous. An S712. <laughs> I've got an S71200 controller. This one actually happens to be a safety uh, variant of it. We've got a Profinet enable push button. Uh, this is one of the products that I manage. Is the 1200. Um, again, it comes in standard, fail-safe, and different um, models, model variations depending on I.O. count, expansion options, memory requirements, things like that. Um, and then right next to that, I actually have, um, I think, a pretty cool toy um, is our open controller, um, our ET200SP open controller. This has actually been out for... I want to say since 2014 or 2015, um, this is actually our second um, variant of it. The first variant had Windows 7 embedded and uh, you know some different hardware specs and stuff, but this one has uh, Windows 10 IoT, uh, expandable IO, has a Windows uh, kernel, and it also has a software 1500 running on here. Uh, you can have it standard or fail-safe 
Uh, oh, so it runs, you can program that with Tia Portal. Later or you could we're run, actually releasing one. Sorry, or you could run Windows applications or program it like you would a normal like 1500 series PLC. Yeah, that's the idea. So you can have a, an HMI runtime on the PC, or you can have your own application on the PC talking with the software PLC. Um, the software PLC is like on its own kernel. So if, if Windows crashes or, you know, it, it doesn't stop the process, but the, um, but yeah, that's kind of the purpose of it is, you know, there are situations where customers will have, you know, custom applications and they want to, interface with a PLC um, and have high-speed data transferred to the mm -hmm. PLC. And so that's one of the options we have. Um, we also, lay, I think later this year, we're coming out with one with a Linux um, operating system on it, a Linux-based Linux operating system on it. Um, but right now, it's only Windows, uh, Windows 10. Makes sense. We got a question from so it's a, Zach. It's a, a fun, follow it's a fun product. <laughs> No, absolutely. It, it's, it seems it. It's interesting. I guess I was going to ask about like the Linux environment because a lot of the OEMs are going that route, you know, being uh, a more open structure than uh, than Microsoft's Windows. But um, yeah, it makes sense, I guess, that you're going to release something along those lines. But we've got a question from Zach that I wanted to uh, not forget because it's about the marketing aspect that we just talked about. So he says... Mm -hmm. Being in the mark in a market leader position with Siemens and Profined, how have you adjusted your marketing stance to an IIoT industry 4.0 while keeping legacy industry 3.0 customers with a path forward? Is there a strategy? Do you see even, you know, in, in a way, I don't see a massive divide between industry 3.0 and 4.0, although some people may disagree. There's certainly, I think, a mentality shift on how things need to be done. But do you like segment those customers in, in such a way and have maybe different strategies on how to address their needs and how to like maybe communicate with them? I'm not sure I, okay. So I guess when we talk about, at least my understanding of when we talk about migrating legacy customers into an industry 4.0, um, um, infrastructure, right? My thought first thought goes to converting Profibus to Profinet um, or, or, or Ethernet-based protocols, right? Um, to be fair, Profinet is more of a field bus protocol. So usually you'll see it, you know, lower from the PLC downward to your field IO, um, your field devices, you know, in this case, the push button that has Profinet directly, you know, <laughs> enabled also. Uh, there's all kinds of Profinet enabled devices out there, encoders, um, safety switches, you know, whatever the case is. So, but there's still a ton of people out, out there that are running Profibus, the purple cable. And, you know, that's a serial based protocol. It's very popular in industry. Um, but I, that's what I think of, right? And I think once you go into a Profinet infrastructure, you've already got some pieces in place to migrate to, to get into an industry 4.0 uh, scenario from a technology perspective i will say that um siemens has definitely considered any kind of 
development developments we do in our products, we always consider supporting the current install base, right? How can we adapt this to the current install base so that way it's not a complete changeover, rip out and replace kind of situation. And I think with ethernet based protocols in general, it's a lot easier to make those transitions. Um, you know, our PLCs can do OPC UA and MQTT and Profinet on the same, you know, RJ45 port. Um, probably not recommended, not, not a good practice to do that, but it's possible, you know, and, and so being able to adapt those features and functions without having to, you know, say, hey, we're going to come out with a new piece of hardware part number and all your spare parts are now obsolete. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little bit... Um, you know, hard for, for, it's a tough pill to swallow. So I will say, I, mean, I don't know if that answers the question, but uh, I will say that we definitely take that into consideration when it comes to migration, industry 4.0 uh, ideals uh, and integrating features that would require industry 4.0 type um, setups. That's definitely something we, we consider. And I think Profinet kind of enables that a little bit. And what about um, on the marketing side? I'd be curious to maybe learn, do you see like any like trends in terms of how you communicate with your customers? You know, maybe looking back at the last, well, seven years, but let's say like decade or so, how like traditional marketing was done versus what you see now? Because I think, you know, and we discussed it with a couple of our guests, there's going to be definitely a shift, I think, with, who is going to be entering the workforce just on this side, right? Because industry 4.0, I think, brings in a lot of, let's say, software engineers into the mix. IT gets a lot more involved. You start having your controls guys yeah. trying to learn the networking side, the IT side, the application side. So is there maybe a shift in communication on how you talk to these people who are going to be using the product? Yeah, I mean, I think... Definitely. It's, 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 in my opinion, it's a good thing. And it's also a challenge too, because um, it really depends who your audience that you're trying to attract with a, any given piece of content is right. You still want to get buy-in from the high level executives. So you still have to create content that applies to them. Right. And so things like that would be, you know, uh, panelist type discussions, webinars, things like that. But I think in the thinking about what the, the millennial engineer or the, was it Gen, Gen Z or whatever the, the, the next generation is mm -hmm. after millennial, um, they're more digital, right? We, digital content is attractive. We also, you know, you're starting to see a lot more people programming with like structured text and SEL. And whereas, you know, traditional engineers, you know, that have been in the industry for a long time are more used to relay ladder logic and um, maybe a little bit of function block, but not a whole lot of, you know, structured text or SEL. And so um, from a marketing strategy, it definitely puts a different shift on our focus. Um, it definitely shifts our focus a little bit towards, that type of engineer, but you also have to keep in mind, there's still a ton of old school guys out there. So how do you create that balance of, you know, getting, uh, uh, hitting both 
both audiences. Um, it, it's a tough challenge right now. I will say that. Dave, what are your thoughts? No, I, 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 two segments. I, I, I agree with uh, what you guys are saying. I, I think it's a, I, I think it's a delicate balance of kind of, this is the leading technology. This is the way everyone's going to go. And understanding that there are people with, you know, 1970s, 1980s technology there and finding the balance between this is the way the industry is going. You know, we as Siemens need to lead the way. And this is this is where we see everything going. while also not alienating the people who have been using your products, you know, in the facility for the last 20 plus years. So I think I think it's an interesting balance. I think that there's certainly a lot of opportunity in the market to let's continue to extend the life of some of these older products while also going through the process of saying, hey, at some point we're gonna reach a logical upgrade. And since you've used our products for the last 20 plus years, let us help easily walk you into the path of that. And like Lewis was saying, it could be webinars, it could be panel discussions. I mean, once you've done it, a couple of times or a couple of dozens of times, you can send out some of those automation consultants like you were saying, and you can give case studies and other things of this is how we've done it the last 50 times successfully. Let us come help you upgrade. And this is the value and the benefits you're going to see through these upgrades. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in, on the flip side, I want to mention yeah. the uh, the post that I think uh, Lewis had shared this video on the uh, PLC controlled smoker. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think like those kinds of applications kind of really, I guess the word would be like spark up some interest in the mm -hmm. PLC space, because traditionally, again, I think manufacturing is not perceived as, you know, maybe like the field of choice for all until they kind of get some hands on experience. And I find it, I guess it's difficult to get until you get into a company, right? It, typically in universities, you might have some small setup. You'll have like a wall with a PLC that turns on some lights here and there. But until you see like a cool application and the capabilities, it's uh, it's hard to be sold on that idea, right? And so I think especially for um, newer engineers, it's awesome to see these like cool applications that they can put together themselves as well, right? Because at the end of the day, I think the price of hardware and software is coming down and it's becoming more and more accessible, right? And so obviously I'm not going to build a manufacturing facility in my garage, but if I've got a smoker, I can follow one of these examples and set something up uh, fairly inexpensively. Oh, absolutely. And then home automation. Yeah, uh, a couple of I weeks think, ago, um, had... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no! I was I, you were you were hitting right right on the point I was going to go to. I think home automation is a really good place to 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 start, right? And you got to think like a lot of a lot of the future engineers or the current the engineers that are entering workforce now grew up, you know, probably building a passion for engineering in the first place or software development or coding by joining robotics teams or getting an Arduino when they were younger or Raspberry Pi and um, you know tinkering around with stuff like that. And when you bring concepts like that into an industrial space, it's a, it's a little bit of a disruptor, but you know, you can kind of adapt them at your own home, bring in industrial equipment and kind of do home automation as well. 
with that stuff. And it's, it's pretty amazing. You know, <laughs> you saw the video with the smoker, um, you know, it could be controlling your, your sprinkler system as well. It could be, you know, controlling the blinds of your home. A lot of PLCs nowadays, you know, Siemens ones too, have IOT protocols, you know, built in so you can set up connections to, you know, cloud systems, Amazon, you know, uh, Amazon clouds or Google or, you know, Azure, whatever the case is, um, do some pretty cool projects. I wanted to, um, Lewis, I wanted to come back, maybe shift away from the technical aspects and talk about your first job and the implications of controls in that, uh, in that industry, which I find like really interesting. And we had um, Chris Lukey with whom I believe you're connected with, who's very excited about the different thrill rides. And hopefully he's watching. If not, he'll, we'll probably send him the replay, but I want to talk about how controllers are used there, but also the safety aspects. And Zach, I know Zach is a, an expert on safety too, so maybe he'll post some comments about this. But what are your thoughts on uh, <laughs> industrial controls being utilized in uh, roller coasters and thrill rides? So I guess um, it's interesting. So I knew what a PLC was before going into my my you know internship with the theme parks i guess uh, I, and i just and i knew the applications that they were used in it was very um interesting to see them applied to ride control um you know these these if you if you really think about it right it's pretty amazing because you have a PLC, a programmable logic controller, which is designed for controlling factories, robots, conveyor systems, you know, machining cells, production cells, process plants, whatever the application is, right? A wide variety of manufacturing applications is now determining has my, my life in, the, in its hands, you know, the coder, the, the guy who programmed this thing, my life is in their hands, you know, and, and um, it's pretty amazing. You know, I, 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 and I think it's awesome. Um, if you think about it, right. Safety PLCs, you know, 20, a lot of these rides, right. You go into theme parks today and a lot of these uh, roller coasters or attractions, they're 20 plus years old, right. Almost 30 years old, maybe even more. And back then they didn't have safety PLCs. So to like, think about the type of engineering that had to go into programming safe routines and safe, safe uh, sequences or whatever goes into for a ride without a safety PLC, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And safety also is, you know, something that's hasn't been quick, very quickly adopted here in the U S or North America, because, you know, I think, I think Zach last week was saying um, it's it's different, you know, motivations where in, in, in Europe it's more law and here it's, you know, the liability shifts a little bit to, uh, to different people. And so, you know, I think that's probably been kind of the reason why it's been slow to adapt, but I think, you know, it's just been, it's different, right? We're, we're slow to adapt. Change, change is something that's, you know, we like to feel out and, do our research and things like that. So, um, but anyways, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I love it. I think it's amazing. I know a lot of, you know, 
engineers in the entertainment space and and my hat goes off to them for the things that they you know have to do and have to put into the system i mean think about it right you when you program functional safety for a machine you're preventing an operator or a maintenance person or you're protecting you know people from getting hurt or you're protecting the equipment from getting damaged or or both right they kind of go hand in hand uh but what happens when the person you're protecting is on the equipment you know essentially the workpiece <laughs> how do you protect that and that's that's i think you know been a very big challenge and and very interesting to see just for personal knowledge is it a different governing body that um looks at the safety when it comes to uh thrill parks versus uh manufacturing i would assume it's probably not osha or is it osha under like a different uh segment what is uh who sets these standards and is it similar to what zach had described for manufacturing where it's like different across you know uh north america versus europe Yeah, I think it's, um, it's in, no, it wouldn't be OSHA, right? Because OSHA would protect workers, although that is part of, you know, what they program when they, when they consider programming ride safety, it's also protecting operators and mm-hmm. maintenance people, right? Um, but from, from getting, you know, hurt or, or injured or, or even worse, right? Um, but so they, they, they still use the same safety standards, ISO 13849 or, um, 62061. Uh, don't quote me on that. I'm not the safety expert, <laughs> but uh, uh, they still use that. But I think there's a there's a body within ASTM that focuses on uh, functional ride safety as well, um, functional safety for ride systems as well, and that kind of takes certain concepts of, you know, the traditional safety standards we use for functional safety and adapts them to the ride control industry, but. You know, that's relatively new. I mean, I, I, w- I shouldn't say relatively new, but, you know, it's, you know, like I said, safety PLCs in a ride setting haven't really been accepted, uh, you know, probably until maybe within the last 15 years, 15 or 20 years. Um, so it's no, absolutely. It's, it's, and it's, it's an interesting. It's very interesting. If I may add to that, it's an interesting environment in the sense that, you know, in manufacturing, in many cases, you can protect your machinery from, uh, let's say, most actions of your operator. But when you get that many people on board of a ride, it must be extremely difficult to foresee everything that could or that may go wrong, right? And so you have to be really careful and kind of thread lightly, I would say, in how you not only program the controllers, but also think of the, a lot of the mechanical aspects, right? Like a lot of engineering goes into those rides. So I'm sure that they must Mm -hmm. consider all angles and then probably do a lot of test rides. Again, not having worked in that industry, I can only imagine how extensive that, that process might be. Yeah, it's, um, it is, it is challenging because I mean, I've, I've heard stories and I'm not going to, you know, name any particular rides or attractions or parks or anything, but I've heard instances where, you know, um, maybe not somebody got hurt, but somebody could have gotten seriously hurt or injured, you know, at a ride because a certain fail safe function was not 
programmed in there or was not implemented properly. Right. And you, like you said, I mean, it's, it's really hard to just kind of imagine like nobody's going to be stupid enough to do this, right. Put their hand here or put their foot here, or they got lap bars, you know, those, you know, it's a, um, it's kind of a developing process um, for, for a lot of those functions. And there's a lot of testing that goes on when it comes to opening a, a ride, opening an attraction, you know, there's a lot of verification, um, a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot goes into opening an attraction. I mean, I think, you know, um, there's uh, a ride may, may actually be installed a year to a year and a half in advance before it, it's, it actually opens. Right. I mean, that's how long that the testing and wow. uh, okay. verification process is it, it, so I, you know, <clears throat> because of those, I think, and, and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of that process can be mitigated through newer technology, right? We talk about virtual commissioning and digital twin. It's not really like buzzword stuff. It's, 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 you know, there's a lot of companies that do Siemens does this very well. There's a lot of companies, other companies that do this very well. And, um, I, you know, I know there's, there's people in the entertainment industry that are looking into, um, using this type of technology to help streamline that testing process, that verification process. And, you know, and, and even like testing things like crashing ride vehicles and stuff, cause you don't want to you don't want to crash a ride vehicle once it's installed. I mean, that's kind of a hard test to do, but you know, it's a scenario that could happen. And sometimes maybe you want to test a certain fail safe function. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, no, absolutely. It's a, it's an interesting industry. I guess it's something that you only probably see on the inside, right? That's uh, not something you'd hear about um, externally that much. But no, I really appreciate your insights. I want to uh, shift back maybe to Siemens mm -hmm. and talk about you know the current situation in the world that is slowly getting better and better every day. But I know that you guys had ha have had an event recently that was uh, shifted online due to uh, COVID. And so could you give us maybe some more information about that? And I, I know that people can still find, I think, some of the recordings online if they're curious to learn about the technology, about the, the offerings, and just listen to some of the webinars. But also, I guess, going forward, how can people, um, are there any scheduled events? Like what should people be looking out for maybe this year and the upcoming year? Yeah, so we're definitely looking to do more in-person events. I think this the the event you're talking about is our um, our uh, innovations future of automation event that we had. Um, I think it was a, like two weeks ago now, um, and that was a virtual conference, essentially two-day virtual conference that we did. And um, I think it, it's interesting because I think we will end up doing a lot more. Um, well, there'll, there'll be a lot more of both, right? So um, for the in-person stuff, I think the next event we have is Pack Expo. We'll be having a booth there, and that's, I think, in uh, Las Vegas this year. Um, Do we have as any far dates? As like when, when is that happening? Just... Other events that are <sighs> September. I don't have the exact dates right in front of me, um, but mid-September. Uh, <laughs> you could just Google search Pack Expo and uh, 
it should pop up, but it's in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, but that's not a Siemens event, right? That's a that's a pack. It's a that's a it's a um, trade show that focuses on packaging technology, and uh, you know, and we will have a booth there. Uh, so that, that'll probably. I think that's the first in-person event that we'll be going to since pre-COVID. Um, another big event that we usually host in person and we'll probably pick up again uh, in person is uh, Manufacturing in America, also known as MIA. Uh, that one's usually an annual event done around the March timeframe. So obviously, you know, this year it probably won't, won't, won't occur. We actually, that actually was done uh, virtually this year. Um, and then there's some other distributor led events that happen, you know, around the Oktoberfest timeframe that, um, that happen as well. Um, you know, so, uh, so you can check with your local distributor and see, see what goes on there. If they're, if they're going to, I don't know if they're all doing in-person ones this year still, or if they're planning on, um, moving that out. But so we do a number of those. I think we'll, we also do virtual, um, webinars. So, you know, last year we really ramped up our webinars. Um, I think everybody is probably, uh, does a lot of webinars these days and it's hard to pick, you know, which one to watch. So, um, but we'll, we'll probably continue to do those, uh, two, two webinars a month, at least, um, we keep those on demand as far as the, the virtual event we just did, uh, that content, uh, is also available on demand. And the nice thing about these virtual events is that, you know, we can keep this information up a little bit longer. We can kind of hit a broader audience along a bigger audience, um, than having to, you know, go to a trade show where, you know, you can only a, a show, you know, talk to people that are at the trade show and that visit your booth or, um, whatever the case is. So it's definitely shifted Dave. the dynamic of how we get our product information. No, that, uh, that definitely makes sense. I'm personally looking forward to some of the in-person events, but, uh, definitely will tune into some of the online things as well. I think we've discussed it with Dave a couple of times, but I think it makes sense for certain, you know, content or certain pieces of that, uh, those conferences to be online for sure. And then other components are definitely better in person. So I'm looking forward to everything being available in both formats, so to speak. Dave, any uh, closing questions for Lewis? Yes. Uh, so a couple of rapid fire questions of things that we, we ask everyone. Um, do you have a book recommendation uh, of something that, that has either helped you in the industry or, or otherwise? Uh, well, I don't really read. Um, sad to say, but I don't really read books a whole lot. One, one thing I don't really have, uh, a whole lot of time to read books, but I do read, uh, this is going to sound really nerdy. <laughs> I do enjoy as of lately, uh, reading more white papers and, um, yeah. <laughs> standards. Um, one thing I did not mention is that I am also, um, doing some of the marketing activities for our industrial security, um, portfolio. And, and it's not really a product, you know, security is not really a product we sell. So I don't have like mm -hmm. something I can show you. This is our security, <laughs> but it is, it is something that I have taken an interest on recently and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, raised my hand that I wanted to um, start promoting. And so I've, I've looked a lot, I've been 
reading up on a lot of cybersecurity standards, practices, white papers, and things like that. Um, but one book that I did read um, that I, you know, at, at one point while I was in college and I, um, I think, you know, has helped me uh, in my career is uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which I think everybody knows by now. Um, not a, not anything new, but um, I think it's definitely helped me with like my time management piece and just all kinds of aspects, not just professionally, but just personal life as well. And I highly recommend any kind of like self-help type book to help manage time or, or priorities and things like that is definitely worth worth the effort. Yeah, and the white papers, yeah, I guess, perfect. as sometimes could be to some extent dull, but at the end of the day, that's where you'll find a great wealth of information on, especially, you know, these topics that uh, are considered to be buzzwords, but a lot of times are much better documented by either like industry experts, or it could be, uh, you know, professors in universities who get grants again, because I, I guess looking back at some of the uh, standards, typically they are set, you know, by, uh, projects in maybe the government, the military, the DOD, whatever that may be. And so those people document them really well in white papers. So that's, that's a good tip for sure. No, absolutely. And if you have a couple of specific white papers, uh, we, we would love to link to those in the show notes um, at the end. But I've got one more one one more question for you after the comment. Um, we, I know that we've talked a little bit about um, the PLC starter kits. That there are absolutely some very good Siemens uh, S7 1200 starter kits out there. I think either Vlad or one of our former uh, guest Prestons have called them uh, some of the best kind of like value bang for the buck starter kits. Um, and so I, I guess I guess two questions. One, um, should people check with their local distributors about starter kits if they're interested in those? Yes. Uh, if you're okay. in the U.S. Or, or North America, I should say, um, you should probably check with your local distributor um, to get a hold of a, of a, of a uh, S712, a Siemens starter kit. There's different kinds, but 1200 is a really good bank for your buck. Um, if you ask me. No, perfect. Thank you for that. And then the last question is, um, who, who is the right people that should reach out to you? If, they, if they've made it this far into the podcast, who should reach out to you for questions about Siemens products or, or anything else? Anybody. I mean, honestly, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I try to answer as many questions as I can, either in posts or, you know, through uh, messages on LinkedIn. Um, if you want to know the best place to reach me, I would say LinkedIn. Um, but, you know, I, I just, I mean, I, I, I like to educate a little bit. So even if it's not Siemens related, if it's just technology related, if it's career advice, you know, I still have a lot of growing to do in my career, but I certainly don't mind helping anybody, um, you know, further their career if, if, if needed. So I, I'm, you know, not picky in that aspect. No, I really appreciate that, Lewis. I think uh, that's a really good message, I think, you know, for especially trying to give back to younger engineers who, as we discussed, are trying to figure out their path 
Um, I think it's very important for them to, again, like one other thing that I had personally underestimated is like having a mentor, right? Like someone who's been through the same kind of a journey that you're looking to go through. It's uh, important to reach out. Dave, any any last uh, closing comments? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. No, thank you. Thank you, Luis. Thank you, everyone, for listening. All of the questions, all of the great conversation. Um, again, Vlad and I are taking off next week, but we will see everyone on the 21st. And if you have any questions, please, again, feel free to reach out to, uh, to any of us. And we will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Luis. Really